Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Due to the unprecedented times we're living in, courtesy COVID-19, we are recording our conversations remotely. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. What remains the same, however, is getting to know yet another fascinating, accomplished woman. Case in point, Lucina Fisher, award-winning writer, director, producer. Let's start with the big screen. Lucina is the director of the feature documentary, Mama Gloria, which tells the story of a 74-year-old transgender woman who started a charm school for homeless transgender youth. She also co-executive produced and co-wrote Birthright, a war story. I had the distinct honor and pleasure of interviewing Sivia Tamarka, the director of this very powerful and critically important documentary. Lucina also directed a pair of short films and has written and produced several nationally televised documentaries about such luminaries as Gladys Knight and B.B. King. Her work has appeared on A&E, ESPN, the National Geographic Channel, Discovery Health, ABC, and in syndication. Lucina, who began her career as a journalist, has written for the New York Times, Miami Herald, People and O Magazines, and ABCnews.com. And if that's not enough, she's co-authored and ghostwritten several books and has been honored by the Society of Professional Journalists and the Illinois Arts Council. So let's meet and get to know Lucina Fisher. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. I am so delighted to be here with you, Sandy. So let's hit the ground running, Lucina. Was media in your DNA? Where did this all come from? Oh, that's so interesting because um, my parents were not uh, media people at all. Um, in fact, they were high school dropouts who huh. later went, yeah, they later went back to school courtesy of the military. My father was a career army person and he got his GED through the army and then later went to college and even got a master's degree courtesy of Uncle Sam. Mm -hmm. And my mother did the same. And I actually remember when she went to college, I was in junior high school and I would help her type her term papers <laughs> and correct her grammar. <laughs> and I, I guess that's where I really became an editor is because I, I would rewrite some of her term papers. And she ended up graduating summa cum laude from college while I was in high school. And wow. just seeing how important education was to them certainly was in our DNA. And I like to think that we were middle class by virtue of education. My father had a ton of books in the house. And then we always watched the news. The news was very important in our household. We watched a lot of documentaries. Some of the first documentaries I saw were about the civil rights movement. And those were so powerful, seeing those images and, and thinking, this was part of my history. I mean, these were things that we weren't necessarily learning in school, in our books, but I was seeing it on the screen. And it was so powerful to know that someone had documented it and it had happened and it was part of my history. And growing up, I would watch this and think, 
wow, I would like to be Max Robinson. I'd like to be Carol Simpson or Peter Jennings on ABC. I'd like to be behind that counter delivering the news. And around the time I got into high school, I was writing for the school newspaper and I had the opportunity to co-host a TV show in the community that was for youth. And um, it was called Youth View. And I would interview other young people. And I think it played at eight in the morning on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think my mother got up to watch it with me a couple of times. (laughs) You had two. So you had two viewers. (laughs) For sure. I had had at least two viewers. Absolutely. But um, that certainly was the beginning for me. I knew I was going to study journalism in college, and I got into the three colleges that I applied to, Emerson College in Boston, um, Stanford in California, and University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And at the time, my mother's breast cancer, which had first surfaced when she was getting her college degree, and I was in ninth grade, it had come back. And she said to me, you know, um, I know it's your choice wherever you go to school, but it would mean so much to me if you stayed close. We were living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Ah, um, or outside of Fayetteville, mm -hmm, in um, a small town called Spring Lake. And my dad had brought us there by virtue of the Army. He was assigned to Fort Bragg um, after we had lived for three years in Germany. So I grew up in part speaking German, going (laughs) to an international school, and then it came time for him to get orders And we moved to the South and that was, you know, a whole new world for me. I was determined to just get out of the state as quickly as I could. Stanford (laughs) was looking real good to me. (laughs) And my brother, who was uh, the only boy in the family, there's, there, there were three girls and my brother who was the oldest, um, he had, after graduating from Carolina, from UNC, um, gotten in his VW bug and traveled across the country to, to California and um, was living in um, San Francisco and going to Berkeley, where he was a graduate student pursuing his PhD in literature. So he was rooting for me to come to California, but my mother was sort of the, the decisive factor. I knew that she was not well. And and so I decided to stay close to home. And I had gotten a full scholarship to UNC Chapel Hills. It also happens to be one of the best journalism schools in the country. I, I There was no going wrong either way. Exactly. And exactly. We were really encouraged to go out and get experience. That's That's what you do as a journalist. I started from the very beginning in local radio. We have that in common. I was a journalism major also, and I didn't start in radio news while I was in school, but I was pretty fortunate once I got out to work in the New York City area, which was not very common back in the day. You had to go to North Carolina or to Iowa to cut your teeth and then come home. But back when I was that age, there weren't weren't a whole lot of women in the business, A, and B, 
I had a deep voice and that worked well for me. And so I started in a small radio station in Westchester County, then moved to New York City doing news on FM stations before I eventually wound up at 1010 Winds Radio, which is an all news radio station. We are definitely media sisters at heart. So when you graduated school, I'm guessing then that news was going to be your bent. Absolutely. I mean, I thought that's where I was headed. And back then, you were sort of forced to choose a lane. And I remember my um, college professor saying to someone at the Charlotte Observer, she's a great writer. She just thinks she wants to be on television. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, oh, but do I have to choose? Can I do it all? Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, I was also the anchor of the student television newscast. So I was doing TV, I was doing radio, and I was writing for one of the college newspapers. But my first job out of college was working for the Miami Herald. So for me, writing was definitely establishing a foundation and reporting, good reporting, which I was doing at the local level, I think was was great skill building for me. But I would still have these visual images of stories. And I was still desiring to tell stories in a visual way. And I thought, well, maybe I need to go to graduate school and uh, study documentary. I ended up taking a Rotary scholarship to study abroad. And this was something also I, I hadn't given the time to do while I was in college, which was to go back abroad. Like I said, I'd grown up in part in Germany and was speaking German fluently. We were living on the economy, as it was called, um, and we were going to this international school in Dusseldorf because we were on a very small base. And so I went to school with people from all over the world. And that had a profound influence on me. And I knew that I also wanted to study abroad. So I got this opportunity with the Rotary Scholarship to study film and television at the University of Bristol in England. And there I learned to work a 16 millimeter camera and we worked on a documentary for the BBC. And I had my first opportunity to direct. And honestly, Sandy, I sucked at it. (laughs) I had no confidence. Um, and thus no control over my crew. Somebody else ended up making decisions that I should have been making. And I was, I was terrified. And I thought, I don't know if I'm really cut out to do this. <laughs> like, <laughs> why, do I keep, why do I keep having this feeling like I, I want to be in charge and, and, and create these films? But I, I I'm obviously not doing that, you know, in in practice, what is getting in the way for me. And so another opportunity came up toward the end of the program when we had to do our final projects. And I had written a 60-second commercial that the class chose 
as one of the projects to be made. And so that meant I was going to have to direct it. And um, this time I was determined it was going to be different. And, um, and I had actors, I had a crew, I had two locations. Um, one of my actors was four years old and, uh, <laughs> and then I had a dog on the set. And, you know, really there is the old adage in Hollywood, the worst thing you can do is work with children and, and animals, animals. <laughs> right yeah and I'm sure that's still true today <laughs> <laughs> and so I I took on both you know um but I this time uh I said to my crew I said I'm the director I'm going to make the decisions if you have something to say or some suggestions please come over to me and you know take me aside and talk to me um, we'll have none of this in front of the actors. I'm the one who is directing them. Uh, you know, and I just made it very clear. I'm in charge. <laughs> and it went so well. And then it was submitted for a competition for the entire United Kingdom. And it came in second place. And um, I, I got the second prize. And I knew then I was like, okay, that's, that truly is a sign I'm, I'm supposed to be doing this. I meant to ask you, how is your career impacted by the fact that you're female and you're African-American? Mm. Yes. Um, it, it's sometimes hard to separate that, you know, because I only know going through life as a female and an African-American. But I do know that when I was in film school, I was the only black woman. Yeah. Um, right, and, right. and then when I came back to the States after my course was finished, at that point I had moved to People Magazine and they had kept my job open for me. And instead of making the decision to go out West to Hollywood um, and pursue a career as a filmmaker, I went back to my job at People Magazine. And it was in large part because I didn't know any other black female directors. I think Julie Dash had just come out with her film, Daughters of the Dust. Of the Dust, yes, um, I saw that film. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And there were certainly um, a few um, black male directors. Um, this was in the 90s, you know, when... John Singleton, you know, was coming out with his film and, um, and, and there was kind of the New Jack City, Van Peoples, Mario Van Peoples, you know, there were some, there was definitely some black male directors who were coming out with independent film. But again, it was like, um, I, I didn't see black women. And so I knew that I was supporting myself. By that point, my mother had passed away. My, my dad was in another relationship. Me and my siblings, we were on our own. And we didn't really have family to rely on. So I knew I had to figure out a way to make a living. So I had a job that was open and available to me. I went back to it. And I remember having that frustration that my work was still not reaching this part of me, this creative part of me. And 
talking to my brother about it because he was a writer and an artist and he was still in graduate school. And he said, Lucina, you have a job. He's like, Mm -hmm. so make films on the side. Ah. What's stopping Mm -hmm. you? What's Mm -hmm. stopping Mm -hmm. you? And he was right. About a year later, he sent me a letter saying that he had HIV and actually the HIV had become AIDS. And I remember thinking, you know, oh dear, my, I'm, I'm about to go through what I went through with my mother. Right. And, you know, watch another member of my family get sick and ultimately die. And I felt a sense of um, anger that more people weren't aware of how this disease was impacting Black people in particular. This was before AZT. And so having AIDS essentially meant a death sentence. And I remember what my brother said about making films on the side. And one of the things that he also said to me was, you need to do something about this. And I was like, you're absolutely right. And so what can I do as a storyteller? And I, I undertook my first documentary, which was called The Black Faces of AIDS. I found three different folks in the Chicago area, which was where I was working at the time. And, and I followed them and their stories and received an award from the Illinois Arts Council um, to make the film and actually did part of the film and it showed in Chicago. Um, but I was sort of back and forth between Chicago and San Francisco where my brother was living as as his illness was progressing. Were you the chief cook and bottle washer or did you hire a crew? How did you pull that off? I was, I was doing most of it, but I, I knew I was not a cinematographer, that that was just not my skill set. And I happened to meet a young woman in the Chicago area who was a DP and again, not many female DPs at that time. And I was like, I'm working on this project. Um, here's why I'm doing it. And she said, I want to help. And, um, and she came on board. And then another friend of mine who was an editor, she helped out. So, you know, yes, it was this process of sort of reaching out to my community of people And, you know, having this passion to tell the story and others seeing that and joining with me. And did that become your full-time job? Was that your full-time job, making this film? It was not. I was still working at People. People? Okay. Okay. People Magazine, exactly. So I was still, um, you know, doing the film on the side on the weekends. One of the stories uh, was of a young girl who had lost her mother and her baby sister to AIDS. And um, she had traveled to the White House when President Clinton had his town hall on AIDS and HIV. And she was in Detroit. So I think I paid for that, you know, and the crew to, to go out of my own pocket. 
when my brother passed away, I sort of paused. I think I was overcome by grief. You know, it was not just the grief of losing my brother, but it was also my mother, you know, that loss, which was so fundamental. I was 19 at the time that she died at the age of 45. Wow. That really shaped me in so many ways. So here I was at age 27, and I had lost both my mother and my brother. And certainly, it it felt like I just needed to take care of myself. And so I actually started working on a project about him and his life. And I purchased a camera and I went west, leaving People Magazine finally, and started digging into his work and his life and interviewing my father and others about him. And, And that ultimately led me to finally decide I was ready to produce full-time. And I, I came east. I came to New York right at the end of the 90s. By then, I had written several books, and one of them was uh, Gladys Knight's memoir. And I said to Gladys, what would you think if I pitched you to A&E's biography? She's like, I love that show. I would love to do that. <laughs> so that's how I got my first television documentary. Very was, cool. Very cool. Was turning my work as a writer and storyteller into actually taking it to this other medium. And that started me down the path. I want to jump ahead to Mama Gloria, this documentary that you are directing. Because that's also very personal, isn't it? It truly is. Mama Gloria is about Gloria Allen, who is this incredible 74-year-old black transgender woman who grew up in Chicago and um, had the love and support of her mother and grandmother as she transitioned in the mid-60s. Oh, my God. I know. I didn't even think this was possible. And yet I feel that this film found me. I remember my friend from college reaching out to me to say, I I found your next project for you. And I was like, okay, what, what are you talking about? And he sent me an article about Gloria Allen, who had been featured in the Chicago Tribune. She had been running a charm school for homeless transgender youth. That just is crazy. I mean, it's not just crazy when you think about it. Uh, and what year was that? She was doing this from like um, 2012 to 2016, around in there. And that's when you came into her life, right? I came a little later. So after she had finished doing the term school, I met her in 2018. So this article was actually a couple of years old. And I, I, I remember looking at it and thinking, oh, my God, first of all, you know, charm school. You know? Yeah, really. Who does really? this? <laughs> right. Who does this? And, um, and I was just so struck by how supportive her mother and her grandmother were at a time before anybody even knew what transgender was. Or that there was a word for it. 
of course, this had existed for for a long time, for hundreds of years, right? But yes. this is not the story that we know. And as it would happen when my friend sent me this article, I was on my way to Chicago later that day with my daughter, Gia. And Gia at the time was 15. And we were headed to Chicago where she was part of a storytelling campaign called the Gender Cool Project. So my daughter is transgender. Mm -hmm. And she had made her transition at age 13 or just before her 13th birthday. She transitioned the first day of her eighth grade year. And as a family, we had sent out a letter to our entire small town in Connecticut letting them know that Gia was going to be transitioning, that we support her 100%, and that we invite you, community, to join us on this journey. Lucia, that is crazy. I don't think (laughs) I've ever heard anything like that, to go so public with something like that. I, I mean, what a risk. It was a huge risk, and um, and yet it felt like the best choice and the best decision for us. We had um, probably known since Gia was two, we certainly knew that she wasn't like other boys. And even though she was our firstborn, it was clear she was very different than her peers. And... Um, And that she right away put on my shoes and never stopped. (laughs) And from my shoes, it went to my shirts, which became uh, dresses on her to, I want, I want my own princess shoes. I want those princess dresses. I want those dolls. This was who she was. And my husband and I kind of gave her the space just to be herself. And my husband is a, is a psychologist, so he, he does what psychologists do. You know, he read what he could to find out, well, you know, what's going on. At that time, the language was still in the DSM. It was still, which is the uh, psychology manual of, you know, disorders. <laughs> it's the, yeah, you know, it's yeah. the manual of disorders. Yeah. So it was considered um, a disorder at that time. And, and, and then after a year or so, it became uh, gender variant. And we found a sort of online support group of parents of gender variant boys. And then G went to kindergarten and went underground presented as a boy in public, but at home would play with her toys and put on her girl things and, and live this way, keeping this secret um, until she could no longer. Yeah. Well, and was around age 11, um, put a note under our door 
that was um, addressed to dear mother and father. And, you know, never calls us mother and father. I knew something was wrong okay, <laughs> when yeah. I read those two words, right? And, um, and she said, can we move to another country? Because I don't think I can be a boy much longer. Oh, God. And um, I was like, whoa. Um, first of all, how long have you been feeling this way? And how come you couldn't tell us? And, and what I've learned um, since is it doesn't matter how supportive your family is. It is still one of the most difficult things to come out, to authentically be yourself right. and to, to tell others, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. Because you're so deeply afraid of being rejected. And, of course, we just took G into our arms and we said, we're here for you and we're going to, you know, do whatever we need to do to get through this together. We're going to go through this together. Let's focus on you and your husband for a second, because what you did and your embracing of your daughter is not very common. And that just speaks volumes for the two of you. And the fact that she had such an incredible safe space. Now, I've interviewed several transgender women. And let me tell you, their experience is a complete 180 from what you're sharing. I think that I, my hope is that that is changing. As we become more educated, as we speak out more, um, I now and my husband are on the Parents for Transgender Equality Council for the Human Rights Campaign. Um, So we are not only sharing our story, but we're hoping that um, we are inspiring other parents to love and accept their children and for communities to love and accept their peers, their students, their you know, fellow teammates that, you know, we have to begin to make this okay. I feel that as parents, sometimes it's not about what we want for our children. It's really seeing our children as they are. For sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and supporting them in their journey. And I had to learn that very early on when G was pushing, you know, pushing back at age right. two and, and saying, this is who I am. <laughs> like, right. you know, right. I had to let go of my expectations of what my yeah, child should be. Lucina, in spite of dealing with your own personal journey with your daughter, Gia, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing you could not not make this movie about Mama Gloria. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, that's what I mean when I say this was, this film came to me. And, And when Gia and I traveled out to Chicago, I actually spoke to Mama, to Gloria, 
I think the the following day, Gia and I were were headed back from spending the day in Chicago doing some interviews and and other stuff. And and Gloria reached out to me and she's like, "Hi, I got your name and number." And I'm like, oh, "Yes, you know, somebody had my friend had connected us because Gloria was actually looking for somebody to help her write her memoir." But I was like, oh my goodness, you know, she needs to be on the screen. Like people need to see and hear her because that is what it's going to take for people to become educated about transgender people and just see that they are like everybody else. They, they have hopes and dreams and people who love them and and goals and ambitions. And, and so I was talking to Gloria and I said, well, it turned out we were going to be right down the street from where she lived. And I said, well, can you meet us? <laughs> you know? Can you come meet us? And so she met me and Gia at the same time. And so you talk about, you know, when things just come together in a way where your work aligns with who you are fundamentally and and how you're living your life. And when those things come together, you're right. It's, it's something that is beyond even you. You know, it's sort of coming through you is, is the only way I can explain it. And so it, when, if you're open to it, it's there. And I know that Gloria, when we met, it was like this instant bond. It was like we understood each other. And I feel like she's adopted me and Gia, <laughs> and I've adopted her. I have to say, this is when I get on my soapbox. The power of documentary to educate, to inform, to expose, to impact just can't be overstated as far as I'm concerned. What a learning tool. And between birthright a war story about uh, women's reproductive rights and Mama Gloria, and even a documentary about Gladys Knight, which is not frivolous, and exposing how did she get started? Look how famous she is. I hope that you appreciate what you do. Forgive the patronizing, but I really, I feel so strongly about this, Lucina. Yes, yes, I do too, especially... I've been a journalist for so long, and it's been very hard to see the hits that journalism is taking and the tearing down of the institutions, media included. And I think within that, documentary really is is holding strong. I think people are actually turning more to documentary because it is this deeper dive into something. It is entering a world. And and I think it has a way of moving us, moving our hearts, whereas sometimes uh, we get too much in our head with the news. And, and I feel like documentary has that power to really move us. And that movement creates a different view on the world. And that's what we need for transgender people. I believe it's 16% of people, only 16% of people actually know somebody who's transgender. Oh, so wow. really the other 84% are learning 
through what they see or what they hear or, you know, the gossip or whatever somebody tells them or the false, you know, statements that somebody tells them. So that is why it's so important that we tell these stories and and we make sure that the people telling them also understand and come from a place of of love and understanding. And yes, I I know that for me this is so much more than a film. It's it's really a mother's love. It's, you know, the love that Gloria's mother and grandmother had for her. It's the love that Gloria has for her chosen children, all those homeless trans youth that she taught in charm school that she continues to touch every time she she meets young folks. Um, and it's the love I have for my daughter, Gia. You know, I want to show her that she can have a long, beautiful life and don't believe all the the horrible things that you hear that, you know, you have love and support and that makes a tremendous difference in outcomes and it can carry you through life. Look at Mama Gloria. She's a prime example of that. I think that's a perfect way to end on that kind of empowering, upbeat note, Lucina. This has been a real fascinating conversation and I'm really feel very honored to have gotten to know you. And I really can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much, Sandy, for this opportunity. It's just been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, we could go on for days. <laughs> Truly, I hope to be back. <laughs> oh, and, 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 and you will be. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.